0: Welcome to the podcast of ideas what you're about to hear is a recording from the economy forum which took place on thursday the 23rd of april the title was covid 19 how can we escape a coronavirus depression the speakers were joan hoey phil mullen jake Pugh, and rob lyons from the academy of ideas was in the chair
1: okay so welcome to the Economy of Ideas Economy Forum, I'm Rob Lyons, I'm the Convener of the Forum and welcome to this discussion on Covid-19, on the pandemic and on how we can escape a coronavirus depression. Uh, welcome to the many people who are joining us tonight and apologies if we break the internet because there's so many of you. It's obvious now that we are in a very serious global crisis and in particular the measures taken by governments to lock down many societies will have a major impact on economic activity. The IMF in its latest global economic outlook suggests that the world economy will shrink by 3% this year. And to put that into perspective, during the 2008 crash, um, the, the economic growth fell to zero, but didn't go into negative territory. So this is already more serious than the 2008 crisis. In the UK, there have been a variety of assessments, but for the second quarter, that's April, May and June, we seem to be heading for a contraction of about a third, which is astonishing for an activity in such a short period of time. So what should we make of the forecasts? What is the context in which this crisis has occurred? And Most importantly, is it inevitable that we're going to have a sustained depression or can we escape that fate? I'm very pleased to have an excellent panel uh, to introduce their thoughts on this topic. Uh, first to speak will be Joan Howey. She's Director of Europe for the Economist Intelligence Unit and Editor of the EIU Democracy Index. Then it'll be Phil Mullen. He is an Economist and Business Manager and author of Creative Destruction, How to Start an Economic Renaissance. And finally, Jake Pooh, who's a businessman who works in capital markets and is a former Brexit Party MEP. So I've asked them to give us their thoughts for six to seven minutes each, and then I'll come to you for your thoughts and questions. Joan.
2: Okay, hi everyone, good evening. So I'm going to make a few points about our assumptions about the pandemic uh, which underpin our forecast, so a few points then about our economic forecast and some thoughts about the possible political and geopolitical ramifications of the coronavirus crisis. So starting off forecasting obviously is difficult at the best of times, it's especially so now, Uh, because our assumptions to a significant degree must be based on the progress of this pandemic and uh, anticipated policy responses to it. We're at an early stage and much is unknown about the virus and about the disease that it causes. And we've seen many, uh, well, divergent uh, models and projections. And beyond the kind of natural infection rate, which seems to be about 2.2, there's very little that we know for sure, and that means that there's some need for caution and not to be too gung-ho um, about um, about, forca- about our forecasts. Having said that, we have um, our assumptions. We have assumptions about the pandemic and, first of all, that it will, in time, infect 50% of the world population, which is probably a conservative estimate. Of those of symptomatic cases, uh, we expect 20% to be serious, about 1% uh, to result in death, and that may turn out to be uh, lower. The second point is that it's very hard or impossible to suppress uh, this uh, virus. And instead, the approach has been, as we know, to flatten the pandemic curve so that health services are not overwhelmed by time to allow for preparations and so on. Uh, via social distancing lockdown measures, with the idea being that once the curve is flattened, it's possible to gradually lift uh, or ease these lockdowns while tracking remaining cases and and, and instituting testing and so on. Uh, We expect that a vaccine will be available only by the end of 2021, at the earliest. Um, There's many reasons for that assumption, but I won't go into that now. Uh, we also assume that the coronavirus will become a seasonal disease, um, with, like the flu, uh, with new outbreaks uh, in the winter uh, of this year. And in its first season, it's not going to be seasonal. In its first year, it's not going to be seasonal at all. So um, it's going to be with us for some time. And obviously, we can't live under a lockdown for two years or whatever it takes to um, get a vaccine. So lockdown to what purpose? What is the right balance uh, of risk in, in managing uh, uh, this pandemic? Uh, just moving on then to some economic forecasts. We can talk about forecasting before and after COVID-19 2020 was never going to be a great year anyway for the global economy. And now it's looking pretty dire. Our headline numbers are global forecast. And as of April, our April forecasting round is for a contraction in global GDP of, of 2.5%. And we see all G7 countries having a recession, all G20 countries, with the exception of China, India, maybe Indonesia, um, all contracting. All regions of the world contracting, with the exception of the ASEAN region, which will have modest growth. Uh, For example, Eurozone, we expect a contraction of about 6%. It's likely to go lower. Our UK forecast is for a contraction of 5% this year. And I think in our May forecasting round, it's probably likely to go lower. Our forecasts for the major economies are based on quarterly forecasts and really... And it's a tale of two halves. So with a deep contraction in Europe, in most European countries, um, a very deep contraction in Q2, and then a modest recovery uh, in the second half of the year, Uh, there's quite a lot of caveats to that. Um, And um, we certainly won't be back to pre-crisis levels uh, for a long time, and maybe not for a few years. Um, And even with Um, a bounce back, even if there's a strong bounce back, maybe not in Q3, but in Q4, uh, we're not going to be back to pre-crisis levels at all, even if we see very strong growth rates. Uh, The risks to this forecast are quite great. The recovery could be derailed. Uh, It could be derailed because of extended or intermittent lockdowns, second and third waves of um, uh, the disease, um, it's dependent on what happens to a great degree in China and Asia and how the recovery progresses there. Um, and I guess we should expect that supply and demand is going to be sub- subdued for uh, this year, for the whole of the year. Some points about recovery, I'd expect to see quite a lot of differentiation and the most obvious differentiation will be between Asia and the rest of the world. But also, I think there'll be significant differentiation within Europe. Um, uh, and, 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 and other regions as well. Um, so, you know, countries had different starting positions, they've had different responses in terms of managing this crisis, different economic structures, strengths, weaknesses, and so on. Germany is likely to be the first to uh, recover. Uh, others, and that includes the worst affected countries in the south of Europe, are going to be, have a much weaker uh, recovery and a more difficult Um, recovery and what that means is that we're likely to see growing fractures and tensions and divisions within the eurozone and the wider eu bloc which obviously we're seeing those already so for example uh, we know that all the developed economies and we'll leave aside emerging markets for a minute are going to end up with very large fiscal deficits and public debt Piles, um, which raises the risk of sovereign debt crises, balance of p- payments crises, and so on. And the most vulnerable countries are are those that are already under a lot of strain, such as Italy and Greece and Spain, and so on. Um, and the question is, how long um, financial markets will finance uh, those deficits and those uh, countries, and what happens? Um, later in a recovery phase when spreads start to widen, um, what happens then? So I think um, looking forward to the recovery phase um, and we're going to be heading for all sorts of um, uh, problems and a lot of political fallout as, as well. And just to finish off, because I know I'm not meant to speak for very long, um, just some points about the uh, on, on politics and geopolitics. This crisis has already and will continue to bring to the surface developments that have previously gone unnoticed or which have been suppressed in recent years. So obviously the the tensions within the eurozone uh, never went away completely, but they have been on the back burner in recent years, during the recovery years since the sovereign debt crisis. But they're really coming to the fore in a quite an acrimonious way, as we've seen already over the past uh, few weeks. Um, But other other trends that maybe haven't been um, obvious uh, so far, such as the way in which China's already established spheres of influence in many regions in Latin America, in Eastern Europe, in Africa, and so on, those will um, start to crystallize. Um, It will also act as an accelerant of existing political and geopolitical uh, trends. And the most obvious one, of course, which has received a lot of attention is the Um, rivalry between the US and and China and competition between those leading uh, powers for global influence. I think, again, just to come back to the economic um, differentiation that we're likely to see uh, and the ability of economies to um, recover uh, from this and to um, resume uh, growth, we're going to see that shift in, in economic um power and the balance of power between the west and east that's going to come to the fore more and finally i think the crisis will be a catalyst for changes that are presently difficult to predict um, you know that on you know we've mentioned some of them that are likely to to, uh, to to come to the fore but some things are not likely will the eurozone be able to survive this we've had the sovereign debt crisis we've had the migrant crisis brexit Upsurge of of populism. You know, will this be, um, will this be the crisis that is the undoing of the eurozone and the EU more broadly?
1: Okay, brilliant. Thanks very much, Joan. Phil.
3: Thanks, Rob. Hello, everyone. And uh, thanks a lot, that Joan. I I share a lot of those uh, uh, perspectives on what's happening or or what could be happening in the economic and also the, uh, the sort of political areas. I'm going to speak on one specific. Uh, different area, which is what I identify as the barriers to recovery and to decent growth um, that derive from uh, an overestimation of the prior health of the economy uh, by many economists and politicians. For example, at the um, Dining Street briefing the day that the OBR, the Office Budget Responsibility, published that grim scenario that uh, Rob quoted, Chancellor Rishi Sunak said something that was even more disturbing and ultimately damaging. He claimed that, to quote him, we came into this crisis with a fundamentally signed economy. And he went, then went on to insist that the economy will bounce back. I think the great danger of this false portrayal of the past is that today's self-imposed brutal recession could be extended into a self-imposed and vicious depression. Now this is not inevitable. Nothing is written, nothing is fixed. But the key point, I think, is that how governments proceed from now and how communities and businesses react and respond to that will have a substantial impact on the way economic life unfolds. And the message, the message so far from this government, I think, is massively concerning. I know no doubt Sunak was trying to be reassuring in what he said, but I think his premise that the economy was fundamentally sound until a few weeks ago is clueless. I think it's condescending. Uh, and I think it's economically counterproductive. I think his assessment is clueless because in which parallel universe is a precarious, debt-reliant economy with stagnant productivity for at least a decade, and with frozen and falling incomes for most of its inhabitants, How can that be properly described as fundamentally sound? Britain, alongside most of the other mature industrial economies, entered this year, if you think back to the New Year forecast, it entered this year with very well-discussed anxieties about how long it would be before many financial bubbles began to burst and how long it would take uh, for a recession to happen. Now we now know the answer was not very long, only a couple of months, but I think these past discussions demonstrate that the shutdown has been as much a trigger for a recession that was waiting to happen as being its proximate cause. Sunak's view is also condescending because I think he's not being level with people. Our newly mandated government should be honest with the electorate, rather than treating us as children who can't handle discussing tough prospects, who should do as we're told and be satisfied with the glib assurances that everything will be all right and the economy will bounce back when this temporary hibernation is over. But the consequences of Sunak's messaging, I think, are even graver, because precisely because we're not helpless, gullible children, most of us, can see through this rosy rhetoric, which adds to our existing distrust of politicians and government. But worse than this for the economy, I think painting the pre-pandemic world in a positive light discourages us from getting to grips with how broken things were before, and therefore why the economy needs a deep restructuring to clear away the detritus from decades of atrophy and sclerosis, and to replace all those many just-about-managing businesses with strong, expanding ones instead. Covering all this up, I think sanctions a problematic focus on what economists are already discussing as what they call the scarring effects of the recession. These are the supposedly permanent economic consequences of today's precipitous recession plunge. But I think this approach is a problem because when serious economic troubles continue uh, after the recession and continue to ruin millions of livelihoods, we're being suggested that we should see this as the inevitable result of the shutdown recession. This scarring narrative I think adds to the pre-existing fatalist approach to economic life that disparages and deters transformative interventions. It sustains that old Tina perspective, which today implies that there is no alternative to this sluggish economic environment. And when things decay further, we're supposed to accept this as another sign of the inevitable coronavirus scarring that we can do little to avoid. Taking one example, a a common example of the economic scarring being referred to is the long-term damage to employment for young people for whom it has already been predicted will have much greater difficulty finding their first job and that this disadvantaged position in the labor market will stay with them throughout their 20s and 30s. Now, Superficially, this can sound sensible, but it ignores that what matters to future employment prospects is the number and the quality of new jobs which are being created after the recession. We don't need to put up with and learn to cope with these supposedly inevitable scarring features of the recession. Instead, we need a post-pandemic radical reset in order to create lots of new businesses, new sectors, and decent jobs for people of all ages. And this is why Sunak's misleading positive picture of the past is also counterproductive uh, for economic prosperity. I think its false assurance is making things a lot worse. Firstly, because the hardships of, this, of the shutdown are superimposing themselves on a population, many of whom have been scraping by for far too long already. For some people, this lockdown recession is the final shove from just about keeping their heads above the water to going under. Second reason it's counterproductive is that the complacency in this statement reduces the pressure on Downing Street to act decisively, contributing itself to the slowness and caution of their economic responses. For Sunak and the Cabinet, the most pointed aspect of the OBR scenario that published last week should not have been the, the one-third cut in output in the second quarter or government borrowing jumping by 12% of GDP, but with the warning that more than 2 million people will lose their jobs. These redundancies were not inevitable, making this part of the uh, OBR's projection really a rebuke at the government's failure to honor their repeated pledge to do whatever it takes to support and sustain businesses in order to protect employment. Because in contrast to some other hard hit countries like Switzerland that put cash into the hands of businesses quickly, minimizing as a result additional joblessness, SUNAC's complacency is already being paid for by far too many unnecessarily unemployed people. Finally, the third longer term counterproductive consequence of Sunak's sanguine statement, is that it reduces the force for a government-initiated transformation program after the pandemic. Because without a comprehensive action plan, an economy that has been stuck in a covert, disguised depression for decades could move into, could enter into an overt, much more disruptive stage. And we need to begin, therefore, national, and I think more importantly, local discussions, local conversations immediately in order to prepare ourselves to take charge over what could be this potential turmoil in the, uh, in the quarters and months to come. So in summary, to reduce the possibilities, and they are just possibilities, but to reduce the possibilities of a chaotic, uncontrolled phase of depression, the government must level with people that we are in an economic uh, shambles and we were in one long before anyone had ever heard of COVID-19. And this is the time we need to start to take shared control of our economic prospects, shaking up our broken systems of production and assuming, finally, collective responsibility for our future.
1: Thanks very much, Phil. Um, That's very useful as well. Um, Jake. Thanks, Rob. And hello, everybody.
4: Um, It's almost as if uh, that's what uh, all we populists were waiting for, because COVID-19 seems to have... um, Sort of writ large everything the the populists have been saying for years, localism versus globalism, the nation state, uh, issues with corporatism, uh, belief in personal accountability. So I just thought I'd start off with that with a sort of political thought.
5: Mm-hmm.
4: Um, I really feel sorry for Joan and the, and the, who'd be an economic force, forecaster. It's unbelievably difficult, uh, but the point is the scale is is absolutely huge, whether it's a 20% contraction, 25% contraction, the scale of this is, is absolutely enormous. They also very much agree there's going to be very profound geopolitical implications, changes to supply chains, uh, nearshoring, reshoring. Uh, but also, I think uh, people have seen lots of comments around the oil market in the last week or so um, could lead to Real instability in the Middle East, Iran, Iraq, Saudi, all very dependent on an oil price at very different levels to this. Um, I also very much agree with Phil's analysis. There's a, there's a massive risk of complacency. Um, I was lucky enough to be invited onto a call yesterday by a very large corporate um, for an off-the-record briefing uh, by the governor of the Bank of England, David Bailey. And a bit like Sunak, he was making all the right sort of sanguine, you know, sort of reassuring noises. And obviously, part of his job is market stability. But it it really worried me, the tone, because it was very much business as usual. It's, um, you know, some of the, the policy initiatives they've done, the Bank of England's doing in terms of lending very much to large corporates. It struck me as a really sort of, you know, kind of, a rerun of 0809, a very sort of corporate approach approach to things. I don't think the the diagnosis is wrong, but I think the approach is going to be a rerun of 0809, and I'll talk about that a little bit more. And it, it sort of feels like I'm sort of really worried the civil service are going to be at the heart of this because two of the biggest departments of government, um, health and the treasury the civil service is really asserting control, and that means we're gonna get the same solutions we had before, and we need something completely different. Um, So I'm just gonna talk about three really big uh, macroeconomic issues as I see it. But before I do, I think uh, in the last sort of few years, politics has very much been driving uh, sort of economic and and societal uh, kind of analysis. I think that's really shifted. I think uh, economics is really going to be the driving force in, in terms of um, sort of political philosophies and political parties, and also how sort of society reconfigures itself. So the three really big issues I see are, first one, are three, I'll just say what they are and then go through them. The role of the state. Second thing is debt. And the third piece is allowing capitalism to work. So the role of the state is, is a huge problem. Uh, the idea, I mean, the Bank of England Treasury were talking only a couple of weeks ago about V-shaped or U-shaped recoveries. That's, if they understand anything about economics, that is a total nonsense. Because when the state goes from 40% of the economy to 60% of the economy over a weekend, uh, that takes is going to take years to unwind. So people used to talk about... Um, Tax and spend. It's now spend and tax. Uh, leveling up has gone. Um, it's going to be leveling down. Clearly, austerity as a, as a sort of political tool is, is a non-starter now. But this, the, the role of the state, as I see it, has two sort of uh, lower-level implications. There are what I'd call more technical implications. So over a weekend, the government nationalized the railways also wrote off 13 billion of NHS trust debt. Um, There are 107 trusts owing more than 100 million each, two NHS trusts each owing over 500 million. So if you were a more frugal NHS trust, what was the point in running yourself like that? So the technical issues, so thinking about the uh, nationalization, the rail industry, so you're going to think, okay, what's going to be the right economic model, the commercial model, the governance model, the equity model, is it an IPO? Uh, that's a kind of technical issue. What do our railways need to look at, look like, what's the model? That'll take two, three, four years to define, analyze, and, and kind of come up with new model. But I think maybe the bigger and more complex issue is the socioeconomic implications. Because uh, I've been self-employed all my life. I try and keep the state as far away from my life as I possibly can. But I employ three people and I furlough them. And it's rather nice when the state starts employing my, my employees, my staff. Um, but more broadly, it's what it does at a socioeconomic level. Because everybody is now looking for a bailout. Whether it's TFL, whether it's certain airlines, whether it's the universities. And that socioeconomic implication of where people see individual responsibility, the state ending and individual responsibility starting, that, that arguably is, is, is a more complex and longer term implication. The second thing is debt. This is the biggest problem facing the world. In 2008, 9 we dug a 10-foot debt hole. We've now got a 10-mile debt hole. Uh, the world is bankrupt, has been since 2008, 2009. And all that happened is governments uh, reduced uh, interest rates to zero um, and started printing money so they can finance their own debts. The real problem with a uh, interest rates at zero is it distorts the cost and the allocation of risk capital. And what that means in real terms is it keeps the wrong companies alive. People may have heard, heard the expression. Zombie companies, so basically because companies can borrow for such and refinance at such low levels you're keeping uh, firms alive that should not be kept alive so you have to normalize that yield curve Government the um, German government can borrow for ten years at minus three quarters as a percent um, so you have to normalize that yield curve i I have thought there's a way around it I, but but at a sort of at a a sovereign and a corporate level, I do think people will start talking about debt cancellation. We can come back to that. And related to what I've just said above, the third part is you need to let capitalism work. So RBS has been bankrupt for 10, 12 years. The government put in a load of money, a load of our money. They still earn 62% of it. It's bankrupt. So are most of the banks across Europe. If they've got any assets that are valuable, somebody else will buy them. Same with airlines. You cannot keep alive British Airways, Virgin, however whoever it needs to be. So you need to allow capitalism to work. At a lower level, there's any number of su- what I call supply-side things that you could do around uh, corporation tax. You need to look at state pensions, all sorts of things. The last point, just before um, I get taken off, is actually, I think, there are loads of positives. Travel's never going to return to the levels we've had, a uh, lot more digital initiatives, localism versus globalism, loads of retail opportunities. So I think, actually, whilst there are huge problems, there are some exciting opportunities, but we need to have a much more radical approach to the problems we face.
1: Great, thank you very much, Jake. Uh, that was uh, also very useful and very different as well. Now we come to the discussion. So we've already got some people lining up. So I've got, uh, first of all, it'll be Kerry and then it'll be Richard Ings.
6: Uh, hi everybody, hope you can hear me and thank you for really um, useful introductions, Phil, Joan and Jake. A Couple of questions. First, an idiot question, being a, not being an economist. Why is it we talk about recession, depression as being post-pandemic or the impact of, rather than now? Are we not now, given the shutdown globally, in a recession? Because we don't seem to talk about it in that fashion. Am I wrong? Is there a numerical point at which recession exists or not? Second thing, I am concerned, and I don't know if he's here, but I know Daniel Ben-Ami has written about this, about the anti-growth politics that are already in play in relation to this. So sustainability, which I find as a wholly anti-human, anti-growth outlook, has been given a huge fillip. Um, And I wonder what our speakers think, if that can ideologically have an impact on the post-lockdown world, Thirdly, if the state can do it, the state can undo it. That's what lots of young people I know are saying. And so how do we, um, how do we question and challenge that, given Phil's point that it, that it needs to be a real conversation? And we went into this um, with stagnation, if you like, in the first place. And finally, is debt really the biggest problem? In my experience, debt cancellation and vis-a-vis HIPEC and all that for the developing world was a bit of a bullshit, excuse my language, discussion, given that debt's really only a problem in the absence of growth.
1: Okay, thanks very much, Kerry. Um, Richard Ings.
7: So I've got a really dumb uh, uh, starting point question because I know so little about economics, but I've noted that, uh, there's already some discussion going on. I think uh, mainly because I'm interested in France, but particularly in France about what's kind of being called deglobalization, um, the refocusing of economic resources in uh, possibly within uh, nation states again. And what was really I found really curious about, and I may have misinterpreted it, so I'm, that's why I'm interested in feedback on this, is that uh, the speech that um, Macron made, Emmanuel Macron, President of France, made uh, to the people uh, last week had huge overtones of um, uh, reducing France's role within uh, the EU altogether and refocusing its resources on uh, its relationship with uh, ex-colonies, which has always kept a fairly strong uh, bond with uh, in Africa. So I'm curious as to whether or not, insofar as it's possible to do any economic um, uh, predictions at the moment, uh, what the genuine prospects are for for that kind of uh, return of of, uh, sovereign uh, national solutions uh, to uh, the current uh, economic problems.
8: And
1: that's it. Uh, okay, um, I'm going to take Christopher Beckett.
8: Hey, thanks, Rob. Um, first question was after 2008, the Chinese government bought up a lot of um, debt in different economies around the world. What effects could that have on after this problem if they're buying up more debt? What kinds of problems could that have for the global economy and the, cent- the kind of center of where power? lies politically after this. And secondly, um maybe more for Phil and Jake. Um if after this problem a lot of people have been talking about the need to have more um manufacturing potential for PPE or medical supplies or ventilators and so on. What type of effect could that have on the UK economy if we start to produce all these type of goods for our for our own need for our own good in going forwards?
1: Okay, brilliant. Thank you very much. Bridget Yule.
9: Hello. Yes, actually oh, hello. It's, me. it's actually Kevin. I was just, I'm, I'm fascinated by by the concept of, of the universities needing money, and I'm wondering whether it actually could be a possibility of, as, as Phil puts it, um, taking back control of our economic future, because having, uh, you know, privatizing universities was a, a terrible idea in the first place, uh, it's ruined uh, education. And I'm, I'm, I'm wondering whether it's possible actually to take back control by actually renationalizing various parts of the economy. And I, I would be very interested in seeing what some of the speakers think. I don't think it's just universities. I think it's uh, other um, areas where you could actually re-nationalize uh, much as I, I take the point that Jake is making about, about um, recreating capitalism and, and by letting the, the weaker uh, capitalists go to the wall, uh, is it actually an opportunity for nationalization uh, at a cheaper level? Because it, you'd think you'd get fairly bargain, ba- bargain uh, basement prices for, for many of the different things. So I'm just wondering what the, the speakers would think about that. Okay, great. Uh, um, there's quite a lot on the table already, so I've got, I'll just bring in three questions
1: that um, other people have asked at the moment. So, um, Bev uh, had a question for Phil, which is, um, you talked about local discussions, and could you elaborate on what you mean by that? Um, Sarah had a question for uh, Jake, which was, um, could you elaborate on this idea of positive retail opportunities? Um, what do you mean by that? And then Michael was asking the whole panel uh, about climate change. Are we going to see the back of net zero and all these other ambitions? Because you know, is that going to be put to bed because of um, of these problems? I'm going to take three more uh, people speaking and then I'll bring the panel back in. So that's Hillary, somebody called iPad and then uh, Frank Ferreira. <laughs> so um, uh, Hillary.
10: Thank you. So um, the, the point about debt I think is a really good question. So in the last round, three rounds of QE, uh, the US government issued I think it's about four four trillion dollars worth uh, of uh, effectively printing money. This time they're up to 10 trillion already. And it does seem to me that if China even starts margin selling some of that debt, those uh, tensions between China and America could get really uh, quite serious quite quickly. Um, just on what Jake said about the Bank of England and, and them making reassuring noises about a corporate approach, what's really interesting, I think, is we've been talking to we as Business. we've been talking to our bankers, Lloyds, trying to get an overdraft just on the basis that there might be some uh, um, liquidity uh, issues. And effectively, they will not talk to us about a commercial overdraft uh, facility because they're scared that they'll be accused of money-making from the situation. So they will only talk to us about a kind of subsidised COVID-related overdraft, uh, which is subject to quite, quite different terms and is not what we want. But it's, it's really interesting that that's their, um, their, their attitude. And I do think there's actually quite an interesting play going on between the way that different companies are reacting. So people might have noticed that um, Allied Bakeries, has sent all its staff home on 100% pay which it is paying it's not making a claim under the job retention scheme it's just paying out of profits and there does seem to be kind of a a real difference between uh, the corporate world opening up which i think is quite an interesting one
11: hi there um my name's mark um i'm not ipad um i'd like to something that i think that jake or oh, sorry jacob raised which was actually the idea as Uh, China owning a lot of debt, whether debt could actually be used as a weapon of war, is contagion from other countries, particularly in response to um, Italy, and effectively that it is holding Germany to ransom um, at the moment, saying, well, we will either walk away and flatten the euro, or you will give us... X amount of money, and that will in itself blow apart the euro by having to create euro bonds. And my third question is Is there anybody in this government, or even in this parliament, or in politics in this country? uh, Phil talked primarily about the idea of upturning everything. Now, politics is the art of the possible, not the art of what we would love in in the future. So, have we actually got anybody who is responsible and in government who would go anywhere near that? Considering we've also got a dilatory civil service who are primarily lefty.
1: Right. Okay. So, thank you very much for that. And finally, uh, for this round, uh, Frank Faraday.
12: Yeah. Uh, yeah. Very interesting introductions. I got. Uh, three questions about three trends that I'm particularly interested in. Uh, i just like to have the uh, response from you guys. The first one is, I don't see how you can continue uh, and do what happened back in 2008 in the present circumstance. It's very difficult to see uh, the, the different governments saving the banks, saving all the businesses, just merely relying on credit to almost kind of pretend that nothing must have happened in the way that it was done in the past. I think there's been a lot of uh, negative experience from the previous recession. Um, and now, in, when we you know not talking about a recession, but a depression, I'm not sure whether that's possible uh, for governments to do that. And I think that uh, if that's the case, then it's fairly likely that there's going to be a much more um, explicit, clearer Form of depression kicking in uh, in the in the next period. The second thing that uh, I kind of see as being quite interesting <clears throat> has got to do with the um, very powerful impulse towards autarky, and I think that you could argue that it's all talk and no action, and it's just a a knee like kind of a knee jerk like reaction to what has happened, and you know people are realizing that they can't really. Uh, simply rely on cheap, crappy Chinese goods coming into their own country. And that's going to be the end of it. I think there's a kind of, there's a very strong trend towards this. And you can see that international tensions are much more um, developed than than they were beforehand. It isn't just simply a lot of talk and, and just kind of gestures. So uh, I, I do think there's going to be a, a lot more of that. I'm just wondering to what extent and that has got a scope to to develop uh, mainly because all the governments will be looking for some kind of lever uh some kind of domestic lever that they can uh, rely on in the in, in the coming period and uh, uh, if that happens you know how does that relate to the uh trends towards depression that we discussed beforehand the third uh question i have in, in many ways the most important question it relates to something that the previous guy was saying. At the moment, I don't see anybody in the British government who's got the uh, wherewithal to actually address the need to restructure the economy. I mean, all the talk is about you're going to look after the NHS, you're going to look after this, and we are going to look after that. But there's no serious talk about how the economy can be restructured, and certainly no serious discussion about how the government can lead the way by, uh, by in a sense. Um, Uh, identifying sectors of technology or industry, which society needs to kind of move forward. So I don't think that in Britain that's happening at the moment, hopefully it will, because it's quite important, but is there anywhere in Europe uh, where that's happening? I know that Macron has talked quite a bit about this, but is there anywhere in Europe where there is a a more of a a kind of concentrated, focused attempt to think uh, towards the future about the and about the need to restructure the economy by, by investing in in some of this stuff, or, is, or are we still uh, sort of a million miles away from that
1: okay, great, thank you very much frank um, so we 've got one other question in, which was um, from Janet, which is about Quangos and the, the way in which the public sector is protected and This discrepancy between that and the private sector um, as well. So what's going to happen there? There's an awful lot on the table already. So uh, speakers, you uh, can't possibly answer everything. So I just think you need to pick out two or three things. Uh, I'll give you a couple of minutes each to sort of answer some of those things, but pick out the things that you think are most important. Because there's quite a lot directed to you, Jake, I might start with you, if that's all right.
5: Okay.
4: um, Net zero, Uh, well, we now know what it costs. And you don't need to wait till 2030 or 2050. You can do it in 2020. And of course, the uh, extension rebellion rebellion are the first people to say, uh, we now need to pay for people because they can't feed themselves. So we now know what a real crisis looks like, not what um, people love to um, exaggerate by calling it a crisis. That is not something that's going to be pushed, particularly because we have gone to net zero and the economic implications are now better understood. A couple of comments around there's no problem with debt. Um, Japan's 15, 20 years ahead of us. Um, There's an expression in the markets called Japanification. So basically, uh, they've had a sclerotic economy for the best part of 30 years, zero interest rates for all basically was actually the cause, the original cause actually of the uh, 87 crash was the bit like we talked about China being big investors in US treasuries. Uh, Actually, Japan was the big investor in in U.S. Treasury at the time, and those funds were kind of reshored and have stayed in the domestic economy. So it's a much more internal economy, 200 percent debt to GDP, growth's never going. It hasn't gone anywhere for 25 years. Stock market's never been above 50 percent of the high. So that is the implication of of debt. Um, France, uh, Macron, as usual. I've done a lot of business in France. Um, Macron, as usual, as usual, is is playing any card he can to try and make the Germans feel guilty. Um, all these threats uh, about walking away from the EU. Um, there was I can't remember the name of the very senior UK civil servant who made it his business to talk about uh, talking truth to power. The real t- talking truth to power is one person who goes into the EU Co today and says the euro is the cause of most of the economic problems across the eurozone. That is the problem. You need floating exchange rates. This was sold as an economic project. It was going to boost growth in the eurozone. It was going to reduce transaction costs and it was going to drive economic convergence. All those things were basically wrong. Anybody with any knowledge of economics would know that a single exchange rate and a a single interest rate would cause diverse economies to diverge. So what a surprise, it's now a political project. The euro is the biggest problem and is the source of most of the social dislocation across Europe. Um, In terms of last comment, there's only one radical, there's only one radical, In Dom, we trust. He's the only one. Creative destruction.
1: Okay, thanks very much, uh, Jake. Two quick uh, points. If you want to find out about our our forthcoming events, please sign up to our newsletter. It's at academyofideas.org.uk forward slash newsletter. And in in particular, there's an event next Wednesday where we're going to start looking more specifically at the effect of COVID-19 and the policies around it on particular parts of the world. So we're going to be looking at Germany and at the developing world um, uh, and the the different impacts that are going going on there. We're working through this crisis. The Academy of Ideas is still operating. We are not furloughed. um, And uh, so we're trying to do, in fact, we're busier than ever in terms of trying to run these Zoom meetings and all the other things that we're doing at the moment. So please do give us a donation, even if it's just a fiver you know, the price of a pint to say thanks for this evening that's all fine if you go to academyofideas.org.uk forward slash donate just now give us a five or a ten or even something bigger that would be very very useful joe what, what do you want to come back on
2: starting with frank's last question i guess is there anybody in this government who you know is even thinking in in this way and thinking about the need to have a radical restructuring Um, I think we all pinned our hopes to some degree on Brexit um, having some you know not having the kind of shake-up effect of Brexit not just in political terms but maybe also in terms of the economy Uh, and even in so far as this government um, elected in December has you know talked about um, changing things addressing some of the long-standing structural deficiencies of the British economy you know it's low productivity lack of investment in infrastructure and innovation and so on it was really very very conservative and limited even even then and actually my fear and it's something you know we discussed in 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 my team right at the beginning the very beginning is that on the contrary this is not going to lead to a radical um shake-up or restructuring but it could very well lead to Japanification of the UK and European economies, you know, kind of zombie economies writ large, um, you know, and and, and that's a big question about how governments will unwind all these, you know, exceptional measures that have been, you know, fueled by uh, more and more debt that have been put in place. And I think, actually, the only, the only, um, what I would be, uh, you know, Pinning my hopes on is a breakup of the eurozone, because the eurozone um, is, is such a constraint on change or obviously political change and um, economic change it 's basically a prison for all these countries, um, particularly the countries in the south, for Greece and Italy, and so on. I mean there is no prospect of of those countries resuming growth above you know the most minimal kind you know we've seen italy i mean one percent forever and ever and ever you know greece um, will be paying back its debt pre-coronavirus debt you know for the next 80 years um, and that is a huge constraint on growth that it has to meet primary surplus targets and all the rest of it to pay back its debt to um uh, to european uh sovereigns. Um, and. You know, that's that's what I would pin my hope on. That that has the potential to to, to really shake things up. But you know, short of some a uh, demographic, some kind of demographic explosion, some technological miracle, um, uh, the eurozone even before this um, crisis, uh, you know, was look the, the the prospects were really grim. And you know, for every year that you carry on with you know, 1%, 2% growth, that undermines the political will to keep the whole show on the road. And I think this crisis really does have the potential to, uh, and it won't be pretty, um, uh, to to really tear the whole thing um, apart. And then there might be some possibility uh, of radical change, but also some, you know, pretty uh, grim times as well. Um, so yeah i don't just one gi- more
1: point there Joan, please
2: yeah um the autarky point yeah i think it's it's um it's a very difficult question to answer about in, in relation to this whole deglobalization uh, uh discussion and supply chains and all the rest of it which obviously got underway um i i think it is likely to lead to to some changes i mean that go beyond just you know some um efforts to diversify uh, and increase resilience of supply chains and, and, and so on. But in political terms, I think it is quite a powerful um, impulse at all. It's quite interesting as well to look at the way in, in which that whole idea has developed even in a country like Russia, you know, which has been under sanctions and has ha- actually pursued uh, this course. That is, it, it is you know, quite, um, I think that is quite a strong impulse. I hadn't really talk, thought about it in that way I'll leave it there then.
1: Okay, uh, thank you very much. And uh, Phil?
3: Great. Uh, lots, of, uh, lots of very useful questions there. I think frame um, an approach to teasing them out or beginning to answer them, I think it's important to try and dis- disentangle a number of different uh, aspects. Um, there's a sort of a chronological aspect, which I, I periodize as we've got a, a, a before coronavirus world, a during coronavirus world, and an after coronavirus world. And I mean to answer Kerry's point clearly, uh, we are in a recession at the moment. This is uh, uh, not something that's coming in the future; uh, it is happening. But it's a very peculiar, specific type of recession because it's completely, as I say, self-imposed. Right? It's not like a traditional re- recession, which is the result of, of uh, the building up of sometimes of financial stresses or the result of the building up of production going too far and so on, and a sort of a, a build-up of of, of stagnant businesses that need to be clear out. this is something which the government has, has directly imposed and it is a recession today in the sense that there is a, a massive contraction going on in, in output um in terms of the bc world i mean my stress would say that that things were bad then right that uh, you know one can talk about a scenario of a depression and i share the the, the 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 views of people who think that it's going to get worse but it is becoming more overt uh, than, than uh, an entirely new phenomenon. I think we've been, we've been uh, muddling through for you know, 30, 40 years with what I call a long depression. It's just not been so evident. And that brings me to the second point, which is another disentangling, which is disentangling what's going on or we could anticipate uh, in the future, which is caused by this particular precipitate uh, 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 recession. And what is really just the continuation of pre-existing trends, and I'm, I've been trying to, you know, identify what is really new that we can anticipate, and you know, I haven't come up with much. I think that by far the most uh, uh, discussed questions that have been raised are pointing out a continuation of what is going on. Whether we're talking about autarky, whether we're talking about the tensions within the European Union, whether we're we're, we're talking about uh, the build-up of debt, um, you know, all those things that have been happening. I mean, there's a it, it, just take briefly, the, the, the protectionism thing There's a, a useful uh, organization called Global Trade Alert, which just put out another report a few weeks ago, and they have been charting the growth of protectionism, protectionist measures, since the uh, financial crash. Uh, and they're, uh, you know, they, they have been spreading and proliferating enormously across the world. They just, seem to, they just take a different form than used to be the case. They're not tariffs; They're what we call non-tariff barriers, but they've been proliferating. And that's been something which you can see in terms of controls on exports, in terms of uh, procurement uh, mechanisms, in terms of uh, uh, regulations. There's been this already, this build-up of protectionist controls. Uh, they identified last week, actually, this uh, coronavirus is just accelerating that. I think they, they identified 56 countries which already imposed new measures in the last few weeks as a result of the virus, mostly in terms of curbing uh, exports of, uh, of medical equipment and so on. So, uh, mostly it's a continuation of pre existing trends. And that points me to, to the, my last point, which is the one about state intervention, because there's nothing new about this level of, of, of state intervention, which is, uh, people are anticipating. Uh, that has been the nature of what already has been a zombie economy in Britain and many other places for a long time. What is important, I think, is the way in order to, what is useful to look at is the extent to which the impact of this precipitate recession brings out things to the surface more. That's what can potentially create a, a different type of discussion. Because I share what Joan says, and, and I think probably Frank's question was uh, expecting this answer. There isn't any sign of uh, initiatives being taken to have a radical restructuring. I don't think you know, what we've seen come out of France is any different. They are simply finding different ways to continue the pre-existing state role, which was a conservator role, not a shake-up role, not a restructuring role. To conserve as much as possible what exists. That's what the whole last 10 years of quantitative easing and ultra easy monetary policies have been about. You know, there wasn't capitalism, uh, you know, un- untrammeled capitalism. Capitalism within the West has been reliant on state debt uh, sponsored by uh, the central banks. And that's, that, and that's what's continuing, uh, continuing today. Now, the question is to what extent is bringing these things out in the open create an opportunity? for beginning, uh, beginning to question what's going on. I mean, my, my instinct is the same as Jones, is that we will go into a more overt uh, form of depression is the most likely thing, unless there is a radical change. And that's not just a, a cumulative effect. I do feel that, that uh, there are certain levels of exhaustion of the old policies. I'll just leave with one question, which I'll throw out as well. One thing that's quite interesting on the level of state intervention is that for the last two or three years, there's been an open discussion that monetary policy, this positive easing and buildup of debt, which has been keeping the whole thing afloat, that that has reached its limits. And there's a lot of discussion in the last two or three years as to whether, you know, that's going, it, it's clearly not reversible. You know, the, the central banks haven't been able to roll back on it. They've not been able to sell their bonds. They've not been able to push down the balance sheet, but is that reversible? And it, and, it, and it doesn't look like it. So the discussion has been perhaps the elected governments will take more of a role with fiscal activism. And, and it's a question to me as to whether actually the experience of this recession is going to accelerate or retard that trend. Because if you look at somewhere like uh, uh, Europe, you can see that it's actually given the European Central Bank, this quango, unaccountable, unelected body, a greater status again, because the politicians have been incapable of coming up with even a, a you know a shared. Uh, recovery recovery plan i mean i think they're discussing it tonight as well or, or perhaps tomorrow maybe they will but so far it's been the central banks the unelected unaccountable wing of the state that have been uh, playing the, the dominant roles and the politicians have been unable to to, to, to seize the uh, the demands of the occasion so that'll be interesting to see how that works itself out.
1: sorry uh, thank you very much phil uh, right so i've got a pile of people coming in now to speak if i could have uh dominic first
13: yeah, hi Rob and everybody uh, else. So I just want to speak on these questions around the possible breakup of the Eurozone. And um, as I see it, there are a number of different possible scenarios. Um, despite what uh, has been said recently, uh, one scenario is that uh, there is some kind of mutualizing of debt and um, particularly Germany, the Netherlands and the other uh, Northern European states uh, help out of this. Um, the second possible scenario, which is entirely possible, is that it defaults and there's some kind of um, uh, Italy. The third possible scenario is that um, it leaves uh, the eurozone. So I just wanted to kind of um, take those uh, different scenarios into consideration. And um, to me, firstly, I know this is a kind of economic forum. But there doesn't seem to be any momentum uh, within the main political parties to leave the Eurozone from uh, the parties. So that brings me back to the other uh, two scenarios. Um, the second scenario is that Italy uh, defaults on its debt and wider uh, financial crisis in the Eurozone and possibly more widely. Um, I don't think that's likely in the very short term, um, but there is the potential for that in the long term. And uh, I don't know if people are aware, but the European Central Bank has been breaking its own rules uh, over the last uh, couple of weeks to support. Uh, it, uh, it's bought 30 to 40 billion uh, euros of Italian bonds, supposed to be according to its own regulations, in proportion to Um, The Italian government buying similar levels has broken all the rules on that. Uh, On Wednesday there was an unscheduled meeting of the Governing Council of the and uh, they decided that uh, all the pricing of bonds would date from the seventh of April, and uh, if uh, bonds were devalued to junk, uh, they would still be valid. That's because uh, Standard and Poor's Global uh, tomorrow are due to reevaluate. Italian credit, and it could go well to uh, junk. So again, that's a kind of completely unprecedented situation. The ECB would do that. So, you know, in the kind of short term, it seems that the ECB is doing everything it can uh, to up Italian debt. However, in relation to uh, Kerry's question earlier, yeah, as uh, output falls by 9%, as the IMF predicted, uh, can Italy continue to service its debt I think that will only be dependent on the other European states uh, throwing some liquidity towards Italy. Uh, Merkel did a speech in the Bundestag this morning saying she's now prepared to do that. Um, I think Italy is too big to fail. And I think that um, given the exposure of many companies and financial institutions to Italian debt, um, some kind of debt restructuring assisted by the new northern European state, most likely those three scenarios.
1: So,
14: uh, thank you, Dominic. Um, Rick Moore. Uh, good evening, everybody. Um, just wanted to add some of my sort of thoughts and observations into the discussion um, on what the government have been doing to try and um, sort of help everyone with this. It seems that there's a huge disparity between the support offered to people on PAYE and those on self-assessment. Um, small businesses are some of the best innovators um, in in the marketplace and add significant amounts of tax to the treasury. Um, but you know, when it comes down to who can get help, if the, there's caps on earnings um, that aren't existing for PAYE, and that strikes me as a as a huge disparity and not right. The other thing is the banks being left to sort of do the the, the COVID loans the clearing banks are risk averse um, and that's completely understandable, that's how they work but that then means that what the government has put in place doesn't work because the banks don't want to take the risk on the businesses that might well go bust because they've been ordered to close the doors and I do take Jake's point that capitalism does need to be allowed to work but I think there's an opportunity to inject some compassion into this and remember that this is going to affect a large amount of people's jobs that the state are then going to have to support and there's an economic cost to that. Um, The other thing that I've sort of noticed that no one really seems to be discussing is there's a massive amount of dividends that were already declared based on 2019 profits that are now not being paid and in some cases I understand why businesses have taken that decision. In other cases the businesses that aren't likely to be affected significantly by the the situation we're in now and the they had the benefit of investors money and these investors were pushed into the markets because of the lower interest rates and they couldn't get a return on the cash so we're not talking about the fat cats that the massive investors we're talking about a good number of people that are relying on those dividends for retirement income to boost their own income you know small investors that would traditionally have held that in cash had the interest rates be there. Um, And I I think that's also going to have an effect on how the economy comes out of this when you're talking about the effect of people not having money to spend later because they're not getting the money now. Right, okay,
1: brilliant. Thanks very much, Rick. I'm afraid I'm going to have to ask people now to be really quite brief in their points. Questioning from Rosie Coxton, who asked um, about whether there are elements to what's happening with the pandemic that might encourage innovation uh, in the economy, for example, fast uh, vaccine development or being able to flexibly retool a production line to manufacture ventilator parts. So is there some uh, opportunity for entrepreneurial thinking uh, going on here? Right, Uh, I'm going to take uh, Max Sanderson next.
15: Hi, yeah, thanks for such a kind of Thought provoking uh, session. Uh, I'm going to keep it really brief. Two questions. Um, the first is about the kind of job market and uh, the shape of it. And Jake, you kind of mentioned that um, this could be quite exciting, and obviously there's lots of job opportunities in there. But I suppose I wondered what you all thought about whether there'll be a kind of hollowing out in certain parts of the job market. And it um, brings to mind uh, a brilliant essay a couple of years ago by um, David Graeber who wrote about what he called bullshit jobs and essentially these are uh, jobs that um, sort of pencil, pencil pushers and box tickers and um, essentially sort of meaningless jobs and he was talking about the psychological effects of on the people who have these jobs in a society where um, you know uh, our sort of work is very much part of our identity but do, do you imagine that a lot of Uh, these kinds of jobs, these middle management jobs will kind of be uh, hollowed out um, after the the pandemic. And secondly, there's a lot of talk and questions and stuff you guys have said about, you know, the economic change driving uh, political change. And um, I'm quite enjoying at the moment, I'm reading uh, David Runciman's How Democracy Ends. And he kind of talks a lot about uh, uh, democracies, in this part of the world at least, uh, being sort of in a midlife crisis and I wondered whether you thought that the kind of uh, economic change that will have to occur might actually threaten democracy itself.
1: Okay, thank you very much Uh, and we're on to Noah Keat.
16: Hello there, good evening. Um, I was wondering if you could just reflect, uh, really building on other points, on the role of moral hazard in the coronavirus um, economic argument and just sort of really trying to reinforce um, how the state is balanced helping businesses that deserve assistance, while also ensuring that um, businesses that would have failed anyway and would have gone bust always do fail and are allowed to fail. Thank you.
1: Okay, uh, brilliant, thanks. Nice and to the point. Now we have, it's Anthony, I I believe.
17: um. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for the discussion, really good. Mine's gonna be very quick. I was uh, uh, fortunate enough to listen to the uh, Chinese ambassador today uh, before he made the one o'clock news because of his performance, which I've seen him before, met him before at Asia House. And the the, the point I want to make here is that China didn't even, I mean, during his speech just now, didn't, didn't even say that the, the the virus originated there and basically came across as, as very belligerent and quite arrogant for a, for a senior diplomat. Uh, which is why he made one o'clock news. I don't know if he's made the evening news yet, but, um, and that was the BBC as well. Uh, and, and the point that he was making really was that uh, if we don't basically keep an open mind and, and be very uh, submissive towards China, then they won't invest here. And uh, if, if, you, if, you, if you're not with China, you're against China, effectively. Now I've got a business there. I've had a business there for over 20 years, and uh, I've I've got nothing against um, China at all. Great people. I love the people, but I am concerned about being uh, dictated to by an authoritarian regime. And I wondered how the panel feel that that's going to uh, affect um, us getting out of this, uh, and not just us, but Europe and the US and the, the whole the uh, uh, global relations there between uh, China and the rest of the world, if they're going to say, take such a uh, uh, arrogant position
1: okay brilliant thank you very much anthony uh, i'll take Daniel Benamy and then I might just bring allow the panel just uh, a, a quickie in response to anything they, they really want to respond to so daniel
5: okay thanks Rob. Uh, i I'm getting quite nervous when I see Eurosceptics taking glee in the problems that the Eurozone has. Uh, And that's not because I'm a fan of the EU or the Eurozone. I think it's completely undemocratic. And I think it, as I think Joan said, is causing real problems, particularly for the people of uh, Southern Europe in, in economic terms. But I think there's more capacity for it to muddle through than some people have suggested. So. It's clear that Corona bonds don't look as though they'll get off the ground. In other words, bonds that are mutually issued by the entire Eurozone, not by individual European countries, because they can't uh, get their act together to agree to them, because there are big tensions within the Eurozone. But they do seem to be muddling through. I think Phil referred to this, or maybe it was Dominic, in relation to, for example, the European Central Bank, taking much more of a role, not just a monetary role, but taking a kind of quasi fiscal uh, role as well. Uh, and I think the main counter tendency really is that the, the trend towards technocracy, that, that there's no, no alternative, not so much to the market, but to the state. And that we have to rely on the state, we have to rely on experts, we have to rely on authorities. That could get much stronger unless we really challenge it. So really my, my point in relation to this is that unless there's a strong, uh, struggle against technocracy, then I think Eurozone will be able to contain and manage its problems. Although, of course, people living in those countries will really suffer as a result of that.
1: Right, now, panel, I, do you want to come back? I'll just like, Jake, Joan and uh, Phil, just as that, that same order again, Jake, just literally one point each, bang, 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 and we'll come back out to uh, uh, the um, audience. So, Jake, one point, whatever you like. Well, I think I have to say
4: something back to Daniel. I take no pleasure whatever in the problems the Eurozone uh, has. I've been pointing it out for over 25 years because it is the problem. It's, it is the biggest fault line running through the European project. In virtually every speech I made in the European Parliament, I made the point that youth unemployment in Italy is 35%, over 30% in Spain, Greece, France, etc., I take no pleasure in it, whatever, Daniel. I'm saying the thing is a massive problem. It's a lie and needs to be sorted out. I thought Rick's comments were really good. Absolutely agree with you. When I said businesses fail, I mean large businesses, Rick. Very much agree with you. I think the opportunity is small businesses, Brexit Party again. We've discovered an amazing thing. There's one and a half million limited companies. A million of those pay corporation tax of 10,000 pounds or less. That only contributes about three and a half billion of the corporate tax take. You could take 1 million companies out of tax and it represents, I think it's about 6% of the corporate tax take. Shall I
1: leave it there? Yeah, brilliant, thank you very much, uh, Joan.
2: Yeah, I mean, I take the points that have been made about the Eurozone, that its capacity for muddling through has been considerable. I mean, it's been muddling through for quite a long time now, more than a decade um, uh, since the onset of the sovereign debt crisis and longer. Um, and, and so nobody ever wants to predict that it's going to to unravel and, and, and fall apart. Eventually it will. You know, and it is a question of timing and whether you know, it, it's not gonna happen uh, today or tomorrow. But further down the line, um, I, I think there's a very significant risk now. And that is because, yes, I, I agree with the points that um, the ECB has again uh, you know, stepped in uh, to the breach, but this is not a draggy moment. The ECB you know, cannot actually provide um, uh, the, the, the backstop now, it's needed because the scale of it is just is just too big, and that's why we've had these um, very acrimonious discussions about what form uh, this is going to take. And um, Corona bonds, debt mutualisation has been. Uh, rejected. We've had this uh, north-south ranking, wrangle going on. It looked like something had been agreed, and then it was immediately uh, rejected by the Italian Prime Minister, who said that there's no way that anybody in uh, Southern Europe, or well, the Italians, will sign up to the Europe, anything that's um, a bailout linked to the European uh, stability mechanism, even with the most minimal level of conditionality. Um, so I think you know the potential there for um, unraveling is, is is serious, and that's Eurosceptics on both sides um, uh, are going to be uh, strengthened by this in the north um, and the south. So um, that's all. And and the democracy point, I agree absolutely with um, Daniel's point. I mean, the main problem of democracy in this country and more broadly in Europe in recent years has been the sidelining. Of the public, the removal of the public from playing, uh, from political decision making, um, and the um, you know, farming out of political decision making to experts and non elected bodies and, and so on. I think yeah, this crisis has the potential just to reinforce that trend, um, you know, unless it is challenged. I, I've got other points, but I'll leave them.
1: Great. OK, thank you very much. Uh, it, uh, Phil, one or two points you want to quickly come back on?
3: Yeah, I'll stick to the, uh, the European Union sort of theme there. I mean, I, I think uh, I would stress that there, if we look at things in a narrow sort of economic area, you know, debt levels, how much intervention there is, what's happening to output, um, you, you cannot um, underestimate the resilience of the system as an economic sort of muddling through uh, operation. I think the only changes that will happen would be um, those which are coming from uh, some sort of political pressure. Now, that can be something of a Brexit type moment in the sense of something coming from the bottom up. And you know, that's not inconceivable in uh, certainly not inconceivable in Italy and in, in some of the other countries that have been that have been so badly hit that that would raise the stakes. If there's a, if some sort of popular uh, movement uh, within that. The other thing which is political, which can which can shape things up, is what's happening at the the geopolitical level, Um, because I do think on my general theme of how this uh, uh, current period is accelerating uh, changes, I do think the movement towards, you know, autarky or this idea of uh, has already been charted in the last few months in Europe, in the European Union, of, of economic sovereignty as they describe it, the French are pushing it, but generally there is a perspective that the European Union sees the opportunity of this crisis. It's been stated by many, many uh, commissioners. sees the opportunity of the crisis to become an equal partner alongside uh, the tripartite, or within the tripartite of the U- United States, China, and the EU, trying to mu- muscle in uh, in that position. Clearly, when it's falling apart economically, that's a, a difficult thing to do. But the very fact that there is that discussion going on raises uh, the geopolitical stakes, uh, the geopolitical stakes a lot. So I think that's something which we should. Uh, uh, which, which we should recognize. The other thing to end on the EU, the other trend which more tallies with, uh, with, with, with something Jake was arguing earlier, is that the acceleration of the interventionism of the state in the form of uh, interfering with how businesses operate. I mean, the, they've gone further, the EU Commission, I can see than anybody else at the moment, in placing conditions on businesses uh, for those that have received, are receiving subsidies they're saying explicitly that subsidized businesses who get some sort of money through the, the EU umbrella should not engage in what they call excessive risk-taking and should avoid and, and be stopped from taking any form of cr- aggressive commercial behavior. I mean, that sort of uh, clamping down on you know, what used to be seen as you know, the market spirit and, uh, and the, the animal spirits and stuff, but explicitly... The state at a European level and at a national level in the EU is saying that the condition of this is that we want to uh, uh, stop you growing effectively. And I think that ties in finally with a lot of the people who've been commenting on how this crisis could be an occasion for an acceleration of the growth, sceptical, anti-growth, anti-consumerist trends, which again pre-existed before uh, COVID arrived.
1: Right, brilliant. OK, so uh, speakers, I'll just take it off the final sort of four or five um, contributions and I'll give you a couple of minutes each at the end to, uh, to sum up so very patiently
18: Jeremy Maddox has been waiting so Jeremy over to you. Hi everybody, um, so thanks very much. No, I, I would um, just uh, like to go back to the question how can we escape a coronavirus depression um, because so far what I've heard from everybody is um, some quite depressing facts and statistics which um, talk about the worst recession that we are probably going to have for 300 years the amount of borrowing that the government is making and it seems that every uh, small organization and special interest group is coming to the government and saying me too please i would like to have a little bit of money Um, but if we just go back um, we started this coronavirus uh, following the similar policy to what they were doing in sweden and um, Anders Tegnell, who's leading the epidemiology there, um, who was a pupil of Johan Gieseker, who is a highly renowned epidemiologist working for the WHO and other organizations, and put forward his view, which is that actually uh, what Sweden is doing, which is a limited and intelligent lockdown and allowing business to continue and uh, thrive. And his view is, and I'm not an epidemiologist, that at the end of a year we will all pretty much be in the same position even countries like germany which actually have um, superior testing capabilities to many of the other european countries because they actually have companies that are able to do that um, so why are we actually destroying our economy and destroying everything in it that's the big question here and how can we get out of it well i think. The, the, the big problem that we have in this country, and I'm going to say a few words of heresy here, um, but the NHS has been turned into some kind of a religion. Now, I love our nurses and our doctors and I would worship them and think they're absolutely wonderful. But the organisation and the management of the NHS is not a religion. Unfortunately this organization has been unable to deliver PPE over the course of how many months have they had to do this? Look at Tesco they managed to get within a few weeks toilet rolls and pasta and everything on the shelves multiplicity of thousands of different items onto the shelves so that we've all got enough food now. The NHS, this state-run organization run by politicians, cannot get one single product uh, to protect our healthcare system and guess what by the way they forgot about the old people oh, uh, okay, um, okay. Um, Jeremy can, <laughs> it, can you just wind up there just make I'll a up point my solution so my solution to this problem is that we need to get out of this lockdown as soon as possible we need to be intelligent about it we need to focus on the elderly the infirm and we need to get the young people back to work in order that we can provide for those people who really need it and that we can look after the people who really need the care and that way we can get our economy back on track and save the lives of all the millions of people or thousands at least who are going to die as a result of uh, this lockdown and what the government policy is today thank you
1: okay thank you Jeremy Uh, and thank you for your patience now it may not seem apparent but Jacob Reynolds has been waiting for ages as well so um, I'll take Jacob now
8: Hi, right, thanks. And likewise, thanks for all the contributions so far. The first small question uh, I have is just about the role of the US. I'd like to hear um, the panelists' thought, think, uh, thoughts on that I think it remains highly ambiguous and contradictory, as it has for quite some time the role of the US in uh, powering the West economy, as it were. And more, uh, more substantively, what was been described as sort of muddling through, or what Street called Buying time. I see no reason for that to not continue in the absence, as people have said, of political pressures. But my question, which I don't think we've got to yet, is what form will that take? Um, It seems unlikely that we're going to see substantial debt cancellation because of the international um, collaboration that will be required for that. But will we see, sort of, especially in a world with very uh, strong deflationary pressures, perhaps uh, more debt financing? um, And perhaps even one of the more uh, ambitious but still buying time strategies I've seen, is that we should do so until we have enough inflation that's manageable, but a level of inflation that would help unwind the size of some of these debt piles. So what will be the form that this muddling through takes?
1: Okay. okay, thank you very much indeed. Right. Um, now, we're going to have to do a massive rattle through the last few... studies uh, Salt. Oh,
7: good, uh, good evening. Um, I had a technical question. It was to do with uh, reshoring. COVID 19 marks the death of globalization or this iteration. How do we force reshore our supply lines within a WTO framework? Does this lead to regionalization? And if it does, does the UK integrate further into Europe or, due to security concerns, do we integrate into North America because of China?
1: Thank you. Right, right. Interesting points. Right, thank you. Uh, I should have added that I've got a question on uh, two questions on the chat. One is from John who says, do, you, do we believe the government when they say that there'll be no extension to Brexit? Is it possible that government wants to be freed of EU laws so it can start boosting our economy in the ways that coronavirus has shown to be necessary? Uh, and uh, we also have a question from Dennison Burney. Where does you, the US figure as a hegemonic power and a guarantor, guarantor of economic stability, a traditional role for it, but what sort of stage does it interplay that kind of role? just now. Right, okay, so uh, let's have uh, Road Ravstone.
19: Ravi, does the refusal of the Chancellor to guarantee the triple lock pension,
15: that it will,
19: it will go with whichever is the highest metric between inflation, average earnings, or two and a half percent. is that refusal to guarantee that triple lock presage something even harsher? Because in a period where you've got not only the payment for pensions, but unemployment benefits and furlough payments as well, Have to be recovered through the creation of new values. There's going to be even greater pressure to, from a cynical capitalist point of view, to um, paying out or having such a burden of people who are no longer going to be contributing new values. So I'm just wondering. There's already been a discussion about the need to rebalance the, the payments to pensioners as opposed to everyone else's earnings, many of whom haven't recovered since 2008. I'm just wondering what you think is likely to happen to pensions, or is it too sensitive in terms of that being their kind of major political voting base for the Tories to consider touching the pensions? Because it's it, it's going to be a huge thing to recover all the sort of financing of benefits that are going on at the moment. So I'm just wondering how they will treat people who are okay. not contributing to
1: the economy. Thanks very much. Uh, uh, now Usha.
16: Hi, um, my, I'm going to make it very brief. So my thoughts are about the issue of balance or rather rebalancing, looking ahead. So there's two things. One is thoughts on what we are going to do in terms of rebalancing our uh, economy internally, perhaps reducing the over-reliance on the service economy, significant parts of that uh, which are struggling. and improving support for um, particularly our manufacturing uh, base and uh, small businesses which have been consistently eroded over the last two or three decades and which are struggling Uh, our skills base has been eroded and small businesses struggling uh, with huge tax, tax business and green taxes and business rates, and related to that is rebalancing um, externally as a nation, our um, strategic trade relationships. Now that hopefully we've unhitched ourselves from a very sclerotic EU. Um, I don't think it's a simplistic question of localism versus globalization. I think China's not going to go away anywhere, but perhaps we do need to think about over-relying too much, relying too much on China as a manufacturing base and perhaps building better strategic trade relationships with other other locations around the world, with Africa, with the rest of the Commonwealth.
1: Okay, thank you very much, Ishan. Final voice on the floor is Thomas O'Carroll. Uh, Hi, I'm really
7: interested in Sweden and uh, Jeremy Maddox uh, touched on this point a few uh, questions uh, ago uh, Mentioning uh, the fact that uh, they uh, not have the uh, the the lockdown and uh, So without closing down their economy, they won't really need to to revive it. They were nothing like as bad a position as uh, As we are perhaps Uh, A question for Joan uh, possibly or for anybody um, is what is the
1: prediction uh, for Sweden's um, uh, economic uh, prospects uh, uh, at the moment? It's not They're not in the, in the Euro either, they've got the Swedish Krona, so they don't have the sort of typical Euro problems that have been mentioned. So uh, what about Sweden? Are they uniquely well-placed? Okay, brilliant. Thank you very much. Thank you, everyone. your contributions I'm going to bring the panel back we're already over time (laughs) Um, so I'll just uh, uh, rattle through everybody if uh, you keep your comments to about two minutes that'd be great so Joan if I could start with you.
2: Okay well I'll I'll start with that then Sweden since there were several questions Um, I mean I would say that um, you know, the efficacy of any particular policy response that we've seen, which is, you know, to one degree or another, some form of social distancing or imposed lockdown is not well understood at the moment uh, at all. And, um, you know, the the cross country comparisons that have been made are m- mostly useless uh, in, in my opinion. And, you know, you, at the end of all this, you know, when we, we look back, you know, it may be the case that many other factors which are fixed or structural factors may turn out to be um, just as important or even more important than the policies pursued uh, by governments, such as geography, such as age profile of population, population density, luck in some cases, what was happening at you know, particular moments in February in, 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 in different countries. And Sweden is an outlier in not just in the sense that it I mean it 's not true to say that they haven 't closed down anything. I mean to one degree or another, every single economy has taken steps to uh, shut down elements of the, of the economy. so um, it's not open, Sweden is not open for business and it's taken a different, uh, a, a, a different course, but it 's it's, it's not true Iceland Denmark others have done similar things as well they're not really um, uh, talked about Sweden's an outlier in the sense that um, it 's got the highest percentage of the population. In Europe, that works at home, the highest percentage of the population that lives alone. So there's lots of other factors, you know, that that I think, you know, are not that are in the mix and that are not really um, uh, considered. Um, so uh, that's one point. Um, I had a question really for Phil, for when he comes in about the labour market. I mean, several people have asked questions about the labour market and what is likely to happen. Um, at the end of all this as we as we unwind all these measures I mean even at the moment in terms of how we assess unemployment you know these furloughed workers and how they're being included in the data I mean we really need to look at what's happening and how different countries are accounting uh, for this I mean it seems to me that at the end of all this we are going to have um, an increase in unemployment you know which is usually a lagging indicator in terms of um, you know crises it might be more of a leading indicator this time around but it's and and, and then in terms of the uh, fallout from that I mean usually inevitably with a lag um, You know, you, you will have an increase in social unrest and instability. I mean we're already had two years of global uh, upsurge of global of social protests, especially in many developing um, markets developing countries uh, and I imagine we, you know, we'll have the same. There's many, many countries, emerging markets going cap in hand to the IMF, got balance of payments crisis, um, you know, very serious problems. So the prospect of um, of political instability and unrest there in emerging markets, but I think also in in, in 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 Europe as well, is not insignificant. And it'll be interesting to see whether this um, crisis ends up actually, um, Strengthening Euroscepticism, populist movements, or or the contrary. Okay. Say something about FDI screening and and protectionism. I
1: don't think we've got time, I'm afraid. Sorry about that. Uh, Phil, I'll let you muse on Joan's question for a second, bring Jake in. How about that? So, Jake, your final thoughts. Um,
4: Right, really quick Uh, Brexit
1: extension,
4: obviously not, because all the supposed economic downside being minimalised. Ravi, pensions, super difficult one. I'd actually means test pensions. My parents-in-law uh, are higher rate taxpayers um, and they get state pension. It's ridiculous. You've got to look at things. There's a real generational question here because people in the 30s and 40s are going to get absolutely killed. So you're going to have to buy tax and lower. So you to really take a generational approach. Usher, uh, sure, I thought everything you said was absolutely spot on, but I don't think you should should ever set out to say we want to be 40% services, 60% goods. But it, to me, it's all around training. I'd incentivize Netflix, Amazon, Facebook. Come here, don't pay any tax for 10 years. Uh, you need to be out of the European Union to do that. Absolutely, Jeremy. Nice to see you. I didn't recognize you without your running shorts on. Uh, private joke. Um, NHS. The truth that dare not speak its name. It's absolutely an utterly failed organization. That's nothing to do with the care workers, obviously. And debt refinancing, that's what Japan thought 30 years ago. That's what the UK and the EU and the West thought uh, 0809 No way that works.
1: Brilliant. What a rattle through that was. Well done, Jake. Thank you very much. Phil, finally. All right. I'll just make one point, really, uh, which is sort of a plea that we.
3: Uh, avoid uh, a perspective on economic matters, which veers towards a fatalist approach, that things are preset or predetermined. I mean, that's the way culturally we've been brought up for the last 30 years, that basically the economy is outside of the political sphere. It's, it, it, one, it's a natural thing, which just ticks over. And, you know, sometimes central banks come in and, and, and prop it up and stuff. I think what this this self-imposed recession does is it blows that away a bit, and actually shows us, you know, what the economy is. The economy is simply people uh, working collectively, usually in businesses, um, uh, with technology, creating goods and services. And if a government shuts society down, then lo and behold, the economy collapses. So, you know, it has actually shown us that the economy is something which is real. It affects our day-to-day lives and so on. So, uh, I start with that to then answer the questions which pertain to the economic effects of the of the lockdown. I mean, this may sound a bit heretical, but I don't think the lockdown had to have such a dire economic effect as it is having. Collapsing production? Yes, but we're talking about an economy going into hibernation. There was no inevitability that this lockdown, this shutdown, should have had the effects on the labour market, which it is clearly having, to to refer to, to Jones point. This was a failure of government to do what it said it was going to do, which is whatever it took to support businesses and keep them going. You know, we all have to rehearse, we've all seen the failures of the, uh, uh, of the, of the loan schemes. Uh, the, you know, in, in Britain, it's something like you know, 1% of, of small businesses, have six, by this time after you know, so many weeks, have successfully got a loan. You know, 99% at the moment don't, whereas other countries have been much more successful. So this is a, a self-imposed hardship. Having said that, the problem is in terms of what the what the longer term implications of what the longer term implications are, um, because what we're dealing with is a depression which can come out into the open, which is being brought to the surface. That's why I think, for example, and again this may this this may be controversial, I think the discussion which we know is going on in government or is told is going on in government about when the lockdown should be eased between sort of the hardliners and the more soft ones, you know, should it be next month because otherwise the economy is going to collapse. The economy is not going to collapse because of the lockdown. The economy is going to collapse because of the continuation of the trends of trying to maintain a debt-dependent, uh, state-funded uh, economy, because that, that sometimes comes up against its limits. That, that, that's the problem, not the length of the uh, uh, not the length of the, of the lockdown. That should be something which, in an ideal world, is determined by you know how, how to resolve a public health crisis and doesn't have implications for our freedoms and doesn't have implications for other people dying for other reasons, which we know is happening that 's more important the economic question is important is to recognize that a few weeks here or there and in terms of the return to its supposed normality is neither here nor there because the normality we 're talking about is a return to the old normal of a of a negligible growing debt bubbling uh, squeezed income type society that 's what we don't that 's not a normal we want to go back to we want to rather see that there is something that positive can come out of this, and that 's not going to happen unless we challenge the government on its dishonesty unless we do as somebody said emulate the fact that there is some good uh, you know engineering going on good pharmaceuticals work going on we should emulate all that and support that but we have to make a call for courage really a courage that this is not going to be a nice life for the future for anybody unless we take responsibility for shaking things up and take responsibility for a radical disruption uh, which can get rid of what we've been living through for the last 40 years.
1: Um, So thank you very much uh, for everybody for taking part in uh, tonight's discussion. I'm sorry I overran, but there were so many people who wanted to speak and it was really, really good. So thank you again uh, and I hope I'll see you at one of our meetings soon. Good night.
0: Thanks to Rob for hosting that Economy Forum. Before you go, I'd like to ask you to think about making a donation to the Academy of Ideas. We've not been furloughed and we haven't stopped. In fact, with salons and forums and public meetings online, we're busier than ever and delighted to be. But the current lockdown has almost completely stopped our income. So if you're a fan of what we do, we're counting on your support. Click the link below this podcast to denote what you can. And stay tuned for more debate and discussion from the Academy of Ideas wherever you get your podcasts.